You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, with service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Joining us now on the Hazard Ground Podcast, he is a former E4 who served in Iraq. His newest title, though, is one people hopefully will become familiar with in the years to come as a screenwriter and a director in Hollywood. Yes, Hollywood, folks, and the screenwriter and director of the movie Sandcastle, which you can catch on Netflix. He is Chris Rossner joining us on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Chris, welcome. Thank you for being here. Oh, my pleasure. I'm really excited. I uh, thank you for, for having me on. All right. Well, tell us how your military journey started. Why'd you sign up? Um, so it is like most people that you ask that question to, there's like a, a breath and a pause before the answer. Cause I feel like that's one of those things, uh, that has been morphing and changing over the years in, in the most, and probably the strictest sense. The reason I signed up, um, was for the college money. That was the most appealing thing to me. Uh, cause no one in my family had ever gone to college before. Um, and I don't, and I don't even think I met someone who went to college until I actually got to college. Like not to belabor the point, but I grew up, grew up pretty, pretty dirt poor. Um, so the only way to kind of afford college that I could find was, was via the military. Um, so I think that's the, the most, you know, obvious reason, but over the years, it's kind of morphed and I've learned a little bit. Uh, a little bit more about myself and what that decision really stemmed from, which is that my biological father, who I didn't meet until I was 27, long after I got back from Iraq, uh, he was a uh, special forces guy who went to West Point, uh, and he, he worked in intelligence for a long time. And uh, I think, in retrospect, uh, a lot of my decision to join had had something to do with me trying to I kind of earned the right to have a conversation with, with this person. So I think there was, you know, a, a desire to kind of uh, impress the guy and earn the right to, to kind of reach out to him at some point in time. Well, it's interesting that you say the decision was because you want to go to college. Like, that's the reason I signed up for ROTC. I needed money to go to college. The difference, yeah. the difference was when I signed up, there weren't two wars going on. You did it. Right. You you signed up to go to co- for college money at a time where there were two wars going on. Where you knew well, very well, that had you signed up, you were going to deploy. How much did that? Well, well, I'll tell you. Like, well, let me stop you because there is. This is how close the timeline is, and this is what's. I think what most people find really interesting is that the day that I signed up was July eleventh, two thousand and one. So it was just two months before September eleventh happened. So uh, even though I went to basic training and my entire time in the military was during a wartime military, I signed up when I was 17, two months before September 11th. So my expectation of the military that I was signing up for um, completely changed. uh, The reality of it completely changed just two months later. Well, did you regret the decision then? Were you second guessing it? No, not at all. I mean, I, I, I... I was so young. I mean, I was 17 when I signed up, and I had to, I had to wait. I think six months before I could even go to basic training, um, and you know, it was kind of the only card that I could play. I mean, the six month period of time that I was waiting to go to basic training, I was in this small town in Texas, and I, I kid you not, I was making money by selling air purification systems and water purification systems door to door, you know, like that was how I was making money to eat at Taco Bell or whatever it was. 
so I was so uh, ambitious and uh, you could probably use the word desperate, but I was so um, committed to reaching whatever potential I thought that I had, either rightly or wrongly, uh, that I would, you know, I didn't regret the decision at all. I was certainly unsure of how my career was going to play out. Um, but I, I never, I never second guessed it. I was, I was committed to making that decision and I was, I was ready to do whatever was asked of me as long as the military held up its end of the bargain, which was, I got to go to, got to go to college after that's a risky proposition, especially given the fact that the world changed right after, because a lot of people weren't allowed to do what they wanted to do once 9-11 happened and, and everything changed. When you enlisted, what did you enlist your job to be? Were you an infantryman? What, what was your, your MOS and, and your military job? So I initially, uh, when I joined, I was a 27 Delta, which was the JAG Corps, but then I served in a civil affairs unit, and I deployed with a civil affairs unit. And again, as I mentioned, I was 17 when I signed up. So in retrospect, I realize, and I know a lot of your listeners who have recruiting stories, as we all do, will relate to this. Um, since I was so young, I realized in retrospect, like how little agency I had over any of the decisions that were kind of before me. So I didn't have an expectation of, you know, this is the MOS that I wanted. Um, you know, I didn't have a clear um military career in mind, my goal was I'll take the ASVAB, um, I'll take the PT test. And I was an intelligent kid and I was, you know, a bit of a PT stud at 17. Um, that has changed now that I'm a, now that I'm a writer, <laughs> as you would expect. <laughs> um, but uh, I did, uh, I did really well. And I think that, you know, when I went to, when I went to MEPS in Dallas, Texas, uh, and I went through that whole process, at the end of it, there was, they were like, okay, uh, do you want to be a 27 Delta? And I was like, I don't know what that is. You know, I have no clue. And they were like, well, it's, it's you know, you're going to work in the, in the legal division. I was like, I don't really want to be a lawyer. They're like, yeah, but that's kind of what we need. And that's sort of what we decided your test scores, uh, you know, would, would, that's how you would best serve the military. And my response, as it had been that entire couple of days at NEPS, was, okay, fine, you know, I'll go wherever you need me just again make sure that i can go to college when this is all over with and that was sort of that was sort of that and for people listening who aren't military you know civil affairs is interesting uh, a lot of people like to dub it psychological operations so to speak but civil affairs their jobs generally work with a a foreign populace to lack of a better term win hearts and minds um and, and right. there's a lot of you know, ways we go about doing that that I won't get into, obviously, but uh, just for the for the non-military folk, just think of civil affairs as, hey, you know, it's, it's almost like a campaign, if you will. You know, we're, we're going to give you all our messaging. We're going to give you all the things that we're going to do that are going to be great for you and win your heart and win your mind, and, and you're going to be on our side. Okay, so how quickly after you finish basic and AIT, advanced individual training, do you end up at your unit and deploy? Uh, right, right away. I mean, there was maybe, I maybe had a couple months break in between AIT and then going to Fort Bragg uh, and spending several months there with my civil affairs unit because it was, it was deployment time. It was, the wheels were already, already moving. Um, so even though I'd signed up initially for the reserves, the first, I think, three and a half, four years of my career were active duty ostensibly. Um, so after AIT, there was a short little break where I got to, you know, spend some time with my family, and then I was pretty much off to Fort Bragg 
right away, which was um, kind of wonderful. And life has this way of coming full circle. But my mom, who was in the military, and my dad, who I mentioned was in the military uh, as well, they met at Fort Bragg. So it was pretty, uh, it was a pretty great moment to kind of like at 18 years old, you know, deploy from the place that like my mom and my dad, who again, at that time I hadn't met, um, you know, sort of connected. So like I have a very, I have a, a very strong connection to Fort Bragg and I'm sure I'm not like, I'm sure like many people, I'm <laughs> one of, one of several illegitimate children who's been born at Fort Bragg. <laughs> when you say it that way, it sounds bad, but I get what you're saying. Um, yeah. Did your mom or any other family member, members try to talk you out of signing up after 9-11, or were they nervous that you had to leave so quickly and deploy? Kind of what were the emotions behind all that? Uh, so this will give you – that's a great question. This will give you a perfect insight into my family. Uh, a family. I'm very close with everyone in my family. We love each other very, very much. Everyone, I, everyone in my family has served in the military, um, but we sort of – we we kind of know when it's appropriate to to show emotion, or we decide when it's appropriate to show emotion, and when it when it isn't, or when it's when it's best that we deal with emotion sort of down the line. Like, let me give you an example. So when I when I got deployed, I got the call I was going to go somewhere, but we figured it was going to be Afghanistan or Iraq. I called my mom, and I'm 18, and I'm saying, Mom, I'm you know, I just got off the phone with my commander, and I'm going to be deployed. I, I, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. And I was really rattled because I was so young. And my mom said to me verbatim, she said, take a breath and listen to me. Here's what you're going to do. You're going to hang up the phone with me, and then you're going to go outside, and you're going to walk around the block um, for about 15 or 20 minutes. And then you're going to come back home, and you're going to start packing. And that's going to be it. And that was uh, and again, that's my mom. That's like the that's like the softer maternal person in my family. So that kind of gives you a sense of where it is I'm coming from. But it was really great advice. I'm sure that on the inside, she was very nervous and very scared. But, you know, again, we're very accepting of the cards that are dealt to us. And if there's something we can do about it, then we then we do something. But this is one of those scenarios where you've been deployed. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. You're going. So, you know, whatever you have to do to make yourself mentally prepared, go do that. If that means take a walk, go take a damn walk and then come back and pack. And that was that was pretty much it. So you didn't know your mom was a drill sergeant in another life. So she just kind of basically <laughs> laid down the rules for you and said, here, go do this. And, and it was that simple. That's... I would say my mom is uh, one of, if not the toughest people I think I've ever met. And again, I come from a long line of like male military figures. And uh, I don't think anyone is as scary as she is. Interesting to note. Okay, so uh, you guys leave Fort Bragg and you head over to Iraq. What what year, month is this? What, what's the time frame? So this is 2003, and we end up in okay. Kuwait. Obviously, 2003, because that's when you know March 2003 was the invasion. I, I should, should have been clear on that. But So you were actually right. in Kuwait before the initial invasion? That's right. We okay. crossed the border um, a little bit before Easter, I want to say. Uh, so we were right behind the 3rd Infantry Division. Right. I was attached to the 4th ID, so we hung out in Kuwait, I want to say, for about a month and a half, two months, uh, waiting for the war to start. Um, the bombing campaign started, and then we started, uh, you know, staging, and, you know, the 3rd ID in front of us started crossing the border, and we knew that we'd be staging shortly thereafter. Before you but get too the, deep in this, I'm sorry to cut you off, but I just want to know, what was, it, what was it like sitting in Kuwait waiting for the war to start? Um, it was... It's, it's really fascinating. I think that everybody kind of deals with it in their, in their own way. Uh, you know, at, at the time, I thought 
man, I'm, I'm the only person who's nervous or I'm the only person who's unsure or maybe, dare I say it, a little bit scared about what's waiting on the other side of the berm. But in retrospect, I realized that, you know, I was 18 and the other guys I was with were 21, 22, and I, I'm sure they were just as nervous as I was, but they just had different ways of kind of dealing with it. Um, you know, a lot of guys would um, spend all of their downtime, which again, this was all downtime because you were just waiting. So people tried to fill up their time with something that made them feel comfortable. For some guys, it was watching the news all day. For some guys, it was, it was you know, cleaning their gear over and over and over again. For a lot of guys, it was just lifting weights nonstop. You know, I think all of that is just a manifestation of whatever's happening internally, which is kind of nervousness, you know, and also you're trying to fend off boredom. Um, and I think anybody who's deployed to a combat zone will probably agree with this. Uh, downtime is not your friend. No. Uh, boredom, boredom is not your friend. It's when you the do stupid you things and get in trouble. That's when, that's, that's, when, when you do, that's when you do a lot of stupid things yeah. and get in trouble. Or, you know, or that's when you start, you know, trying to make sense of things. And it's, it's not time to make sense of things yet. You, you have to operate. When you get back home, if you're fortunate enough to make it back home, then you can start putting the pieces back together and making sense of what's going on. But when you're deployed, your, your job is to operate. So um, boredom kind of gets in the way of that. Well, and that was thinking about that was part of the reason why I asked the question, Chris, because military folks know who've all deployed and spent any time in Kuwait. It's worse than the war zone. Like everyone will tell you yeah. that, like because there's nothing to do. They're literally you're That's sitting right. in a barren desert, and you're at this you're at this remote you know created base that has just got tents and everything else, and there's literally nothing to do. Like it got to a point where quickly Iraq was more built up than Kuwait was because the needs and the amount of soldiers were there. You had better internet. You had better PXs and better resources and things of that nature. But in Kuwait, it's just it's awful and. I, this may be a somber thought, but it's actually a fact. More military suicides in a deployed environment occurred in Kuwait than they ever did in Iraq or Afghanistan. And that's because the people who were stuck in Kuwait got so bored, it really affected them mentally. So I kind of just wanted to create that for the listening audience. And that's the only reason I asked the question, because I would have been going stir crazy, knowing that something's going to happen. We just didn't know when it was going to happen and how it was going to happen. We were just sitting there waiting. Hey, you know, I'm, I'm really glad that you brought up that statistic. That's not surprising to me and I bet for a lot of folks um, who haven't deployed or, or maybe aren't in the military that may be a surprising statistic to them but I will say just to further that point even even further so to, to put like a, a period at the end of it the, the hardest part of my war experience was the last two weeks when I was camping on the flight line waiting for our plate uh, for waiting for our c-130 to take the whole unit home like there was what had happened was there was this really big you know, I don't mean to jump ahead, but at the end of my war experience, after a year and change, there was this really bad IED attack, and we lost some people, and, you know, I almost lost my life, and some of my close friends almost lost their lives as well. And the commander said, look, we're out of here in a couple of weeks. How about how about you, Private Rosner, at that time, Specialist Rosner, and how about you, Sergeant Baker? How about you go be Advon to, it's like advance party, to Balad, and you can stay on the flight line for two weeks, and just kind of relax and chill out, and we'll rejoin you in two weeks, and we'll all get on the plane. And they really thought they were giving us a gift because they were ending our war two weeks sooner. That meant that we weren't going to die. We were going to go home, and we could just watch movies and hang out in a tent for two weeks. And those two weeks, uh, unfortunately, were the worst two weeks of the war and of my life because they felt endless, 
and it was just myself and Sergeant Baker in a tent on a flight line for two weeks. And all we had time to do was think about the last year and, and, and a half and what that meant and like what that cost us and, you know, uh, what, what the, what the success or failure of our time there. It was, it was a really, really tough time. So I don't mean to belabor the point, but I think it's important for, you know, uh, just the general populace to understand that the, the bombs and the bullets and the blood, like, I don't think that's the stuff that really shocks people mentally. You kind of know that's what you're in for. I think it's the um, difficulty kind of making sense of all of it uh, and how heavy that can weigh on you that really causes folks, um, you know, some trouble readjusting and, you know, really causes people to have trouble with depression and, and stuff like that. So anyway, that's, uh, I just think it's important to note. And I'm glad that you brought it up. No, I, I didn't mean to get off on a tangent on Kuwait. It just, it was, it was interesting to me, you know, we haven't really talked to a lot of people who sat in Kuwait and waited for the war to start. Most of the people on the podcast have been in, you know, that first rush or, or once they got there, they quickly moved north and got into Iraq. So let's move forward to your actual combat experience. Once you finally do cross the border and you head north and you're in Iraq, where did you go? What was your mission? What did you do? So uh, we settled in Tikrit, Iraq, which is where the presidential palace is. It's in, nor- it's in northern Iraq, more or less. And uh, to give a, a quick geography lesson, there's one highway that kind of bisects Iraq, and that's called Highway 1. And it goes from the southern uh, tip to the Kuwaiti border all the way up to sort of like, you know, Kurdish territory in northern Iraq. So for for those listening on the East Coast, that would be I-95. For folks like you on the West Coast, it's <laughs> I-5 going all the way up and down. Exactly. That, yeah. That's exactly right. So um, we stay in Tikrit, and that's kind of where we make our headquarters. And then the way civil affairs works is you splinter off into all these different teams, these different CA units um, of like 10 or 11 men and women who go and live in surrounding villages. Um, And my job, and the reason I loved my job so much, not just as a civil affairs soldier, but my job in this particular company was to visit all the other teams. So I got such a great view of Iraq um, not just like geographically, because I traveled all around, but I really did feel at 18, 19 years old that I had this like 30,000 foot bird's eye view of, of Iraq and the quote unquote problem of Iraq um, in a pretty nuanced way. You know, like the, the, the fighting happened pretty quickly. You know, the first couple months, you know, we took Baghdad and took Tikrit. And then the next year of my life was kind of uh, nation building, for lack of a better word. So given I got to, run missions with these teams in Tikrit, in Bakaba, um, in Baghdad, uh, in, in Kanakan, just all these different cities, I really got a, a great understanding of, of what we were dealing with. And I got to see all of our successes and all of our failures um, kind of firsthand. So I'm pretty, pretty grateful that my experience in Iraq was very full. Okay, so the impetus for the movie Sandcastle, again, the movie that you were the screenwriter for and director for, why, you know, how it all came to pass, I want to get to later, but it was based off your experience in Bakuba, uh, and we've talked about Bakuba before. It was a very dangerous area. Um, It was a little bit north of, just to give people, so Baghdad, and then you had 
um, Taji, which was maybe like 15, 20 minutes north, and then Bakuba was about another 20 minutes north of there. So just to give people some geography of where Bakuba right. was. Um, but it was a bad area. I mean, it was loaded with bad guys. I mean, a, a lot of just dudes that, that wanted to harm Americans were all coming out of there, and that's where they were all stationed and camped out. And we as a military spent a lot of time there trying to find those guys and uproot them and bring them to justice, so to speak. So you were in Bakuba doing what? Um, so we, a host of things is, is the easiest way to put it. I mean, uh, a CA unit is, we, we kind of live in safe houses in, in the communities. And we set up these things called CMOX, which is where um, the local population can come and kind of uh, air grievances, so to speak, if there's some kind of collateral damage that we're responsible for or not responsible for. Either way, we take it upon ourselves to fix it, right? So maybe that means um, a building was destroyed during some small arms fire and we want to make amends. Um, or maybe we need to transport millions of dollars from northern Iraq into Bakaba um, for some infrastructure plan um, and, and anything in between that. So um, the initial understanding of what we we're going to do um, is kind of, uh, you know, A to B civil affairs. Like you're going to build infrastructure, you're going to talk to locals. But what we found at this early stage in the war is that um, that job became incredibly, incredibly dangerous. And I, I don't want to mess up my statistics, but I, I think this is true, is that up until the Iraq war, there wasn't a single civil affairs death um, at all. And then during the course of the Iraq war, um, civil affairs counted for 5% of boots on the ground, but 23% of, of soldiers killed in action. So it really? became a very, very, yeah, it became a very, very, very dangerous job. Wow. Um, and I don't, I don't think anybody expected that. Um, and not, not only that, um, we also didn't expect that these small, smaller villages outside of the larger cities would be where most of the insurgent strongholds were. So like, you know, I think in, in, in cultural consciousness, we know of places like Fallujah. Um, and I think Bakaba um, falls into that same category as like places that were very dangerous, but they weren't Baghdad, they weren't Tikrit. It really was these smaller farming villages that just became infested with, with insurgents and just a host of bad guys. And I don't think we figured that out. We certainly didn't anticipate it. But we didn't figure it out until, you know, months and months into the war. So we really did have a lot of civil affairs men and women, um, you know, to be crass with, like, their ass in the wind, you know. And we kind of had to adjust over time. Take me through a normal day for you as a civil affairs guy in Bakuba. Sure. So um, you would have uh, every morning you would have X amount of Iraqi people lined up at your gate and they would all have something they wanted to discuss with us. So we would pat them down and bring them into our safe house. Let me ask you real quick. How did they know to come to where, I mean, was that part of the messaging that you guys did? If you have a complaint, you know, go here. Absolutely. So civil affairs and psyop psychological operations uh, are all part of the same like special operations community. And PSYOP would usually help or always helped with getting whatever message out that we needed to. Um, so they knew where to come. They knew where to find us. Um, and you can already see when you start piecing this together in your mind, just logically how dangerous this can become because you're moving into yeah. a neighborhood and then you're, then you're telling everyone, this is the neighbor, this is the house that we're at. So come and talk to us. Um, but a normal day, 
he'd wake up, there'd be, you know, X amount of people lined up outside. He'd be trying to organize them and, and, and bring them in one and one at a time or, or however many you could handle. And you would sort of catalog what their grievances are and see which ones were, were, were real and actionable and which ones weren't. And based on the ones that were real and actionable, you would uh, kind of run that up the chain of command and see if you can get some funding to fix it. Or it could be as simple as, um, you know, hey, we destroyed, we accidentally destroyed uh, this bakery or we accidentally destroyed this bridge um, and we need, to, we need money and we need engineers to fix it. So it could be, uh, it does... It does become a bit of a reactionary uh, job because you really are kind of adjusting to whatever problems arise from the local population on a day-to-day basis, as well as trying to institute whatever larger plan command has that they're sending down the pipe. You know what's crazy is when you when you say this, and I don't know how the rest of the world thinks, and maybe this is just because I've been deployed and shot at, and I, I think on this level, but... When you tell me that that's what you guys did every day and you're sitting there waiting, I'm thinking some loon's going to walk up with a pistol and just put it in your face and shoot. Like, I, that's how the danger of that whole thing seems to me. Yeah, well, that's absolutely correct. I mean, we had special forces guys there with us, um, but we got bombed several times and we got shot up several times. And at night, you know, at night we had to kill all the lights because if there were lights on um, that you could see across town, snipers would take a pop shot. Um, so you were in this very vulnerable position and the thing, the thing about civil affairs that I, that I enjoy the most, and I think it's most indicative about, um, most indicative as like the future of this kind of combat is that it really tests a soldier's ability to stay empathetic, you know, because your job requires that you be empathetic and, and open and you remain receptive to the people who's, who, who have issues that you need to fix. Um, so you have to simultaneously do that um, while you're being shot at at night or while, you know, people are being killed or while bombs are blowing up at your front gates. So uh, to me, and I know that I'm biased because I serve in civil affairs, but it really is the future of this, this kind of warfare. It requires one to, to be, to remain deeply empathetic and committed to helping the population and getting them to trust you. Um, because if you give up on that, if you give up on that pursuit of trust, you're dead in the water. I mean, there's there's no there's no mission success. So, what was some of the more dangerous things that happened while you were doing this? Um, we we got hit with IEDs pretty frequently, um, and I I would say that the vast majority, if not all, of the you know um, wounded or uh, you know or or worse. <laughs> Um, it, it all sort of sprung from that. There were, there were many situations where, uh, given we had to go out in the town every single day, every single day we'd have to drive out, and they knew where we lived. And they knew, you know, there's only so many routes you can take to leave your safe house. Um, there were, I would say, the, the vast majority of the problems we ran into would be an IED explosion, a little bit of small arms fire, and then people would disappear. Uh, you did feel sucker punched pretty regularly and it's unfortunate to say but the route the reality is the there was at least half a dozen or so times where something would explode um there'd be a little bit of small arms fire and no one would even have an opportunity to return fire because you have no idea where it came from because it would happen like in a crowded marketplace um so 
there really was this uneven and, and constant, like, unsettled, unsettled feeling to the war as a whole, even if you went weeks and weeks about something bad happening, uh, because these IED attacks were so kind of sporadic and that threat was ever present. We never really got an opportunity to, to settle into a rhythm, if that makes sense. Yeah, and, and here's the interesting part of what you're talking about, at least, you know, again, from the way I view it. So, you know, my deployments, we, I ran into similar things, you know, IED attacks, small arms fire, RPGs, whatever it may be. And it's just the cost of doing business. And, you know, right. while you think in the grand mission, I always thought, look, you know, I don't know if we'll ever actually, you know, air quote, win this war. And what I mean by that is, you know, we'll actually leave this place in a better place than when we started and everything's going to work out to our advantage. And I had a major once tell me, hey, Mark, small victories, you know, take the ones that you can get and, and focus yeah. on those because that's how you'll you won't lose hope about what we're doing. So I really felt like we were making an impact, especially my first deployment. I really felt like we were making an impact and making a positive change and creating a better life for people there. And when you talk yeah, about the, I, the empathy, when you talk about the empathy of that, that the job that you have to do to try to help these people, I, I wonder at what point in time in your head where when you're getting shot at and things are blowing up next to you saying, do you have to reconcile, why am I out here? I'm more likely to die before any of these people are ever actually likely to live a better life. Yeah, that, that, that is the, the constant struggle. And I agree with 100% with everything you just said. And I know that we'll probably talk about uh, the movie at some point. I don't want to uh, transition us uh, to the movie prematurely. But I, I think that point that you made um, about small wins, and I've said this in, in the hundred or so interviews I've done leading up to the release of, of Sandcastle, is that one has to understand, not just as a soldier, but more importantly, the civilian population has to understand that these types of wars are about adjusting the giant cargo ship like half a degree, right? You have to, you have to realize that when you send young men and women to war for these types of wars, these are not take-the-hill type wars. These are not kill-the-bad-guy type wars. Um, these, type, these types of, of tectonic shifts that we're trying to cause in other countries, like these are a matter of degrees over time. So the, the, the feeling I felt when I walked away from Iraq, and I think that people have picked up on this uh, for the ending of the film as well, is, you know, how, how do you look back at a year and a half of war and know that some of your friends are, are, are dead or they're, you know, injured in such a way that their life will never be the same. And you have to find, you have to find the small win. You have to be able to pinpoint the, the half a degree that you turn the wheel and be able to take solace in that. And it's, it's very important, uh, again, for these types of wars that soldiers and civilians understand that that's, that's kind of the name of the game. Uh, and if you're not okay with that, um, then maybe like beating the war drum isn't, you know, don't beat the war drum without nuance. Like understand exactly what it is that we're getting into. Um, and you have to be okay saying like, I'm willing to give the life, I'm willing to give my life, I'm willing to give the life of my son or my daughter to steer this ship like a fraction of a degree. And if you're okay with that, then absolutely. Um, but just know that's, that's kind of the handshake deal that we're making in these kind of, in these kind of conflicts. Did you ever feel a sense of this isn't worth it when one of your buddies got hurt or killed or anything like that? I mean, did, did, did that despair ever set in? I, I, think it, I think it would have if I didn't have such incredible leadership, uh, incredible leadership. Uh, I was, again, so young, and I was just an E4. So the people that I looked to to help me 
get through all of this were my sergeants, my staff sergeants, and, you know, um, some of like the younger lieutenants who had this, you know, uh, wisdom. They, they had this understanding of what we were in and they were able to like impart that on me. So if I lost somebody or we had a really bad day, you know, someone got hurt, you know, uh, what my sergeant would say to me is like, listen, this, this was a bad day and you have the rest of today to be sad about it, to be angry about it, be whatever you need to be. But, but you only have tonight because tomorrow you have to get up and go to work. And that's kind of it. Like, regardless of whether you think we should be here or whether you, whether you feel despair, it doesn't matter. The enemy doesn't care. And our mission doesn't, you know, not to be vulgar, but the mission doesn't give a shit about whether you feel like you should be here or not. You still have to work. So feel whatever you need to feel now and then get to work tomorrow. And to kind of connect bits of my life, I feel like I did, I did pretty well with that given, you know, as I mentioned, my mom and my family kind of take that general tactic in, in all things. You know, it's like uh, you have a job to do and the job doesn't care about your feelings at this point. So if you have a moment to feel something, feel all of it right now because tomorrow you have to go back to work. Um, so I don't think I ever really had or allowed myself the time to feel, you know, that kind of that kind of despair. You feel sad that you lost somebody, but it's kind of irrelevant to what what you do tomorrow. It's still another day. You know, in all this, you, this your still goal after all this is done is to go to college. Did you ever think this isn't worth it to go to college? Oh, you know. Um, that's a really great question. Um, I can yeah, remember, I, and I'll tell you, I, just as a funny little anecdote story. I, yeah. I, you know, again, I, I signed up for RTC to pay for my college, and I can remember a dozen times saying, like, after bad days, should have taken out a student loan, forget it, should have taken out a student yeah, loan, totally. wouldn't be here if I took out a student <laughs> loan. You know, it's like yeah. in, in frustration yeah. you have those moments, and, and you kind of laugh at it after the fact, but it's one of those things where it's like you wanted to just go to college, and this was a means yeah. to an end for you. Yeah, I mean, I certainly, I certainly joked about it. I remember, like, there were times where I'd be, like, sitting on the roof of the safe house or I'd be working with some of the other guys. And, and, uh, you know, I'd be like, I'd say some joke, like, man, if I took out a student loan, I'd be like wearing a backwards hat at a frat party right yep. now. You know <laughs> Pounding beers and <laughs> keg stands yeah, and exactly. everything. Um, but I, it's just, it's just not in my nature, right. um, to like, to kind of feel that. Like I, I filled out, um, you know, after being there for a year, I had to re reapply to a lot of universities. Um, so I was filling out college applications while I was there. And, you know, I filled out an application to, um, to, to Yale University. And the reason I filled it out is because I met, like, some senator there who was like, you know, listen, uh, let me tell you kind of how America works. Like, you're, I'll be honest with you, you're, you're, a, no, you're a, a nobody kid from a nowhere place. And you don't have financial capital. You don't have social capital. You don't have political capital. But I promise you, when you come back, if you do well in Iraq and you come back, um, doors will open for you. And I, I suggest that you shoot for the moon. And uh, it was some of the best advice that I got because I was able to fill out college applications from Iraq and say, I'm filling this out from Iraq. And then when they would request an in-person interview, I could say, look, I can't do that. I would love to do an in-person interview, but I'm in Iraq. So then I would like get the sat phone and I would be able to like do my interview via sat phone um, to X, Y, and Z university. 
And I'm sure that had a profound impact on like the places that opened their doors for me. And it was just one of those chance things where, you know, I ran into, I wish I could remember the Senator's name, but I ran into him at like a, a chow hall or something. He gave me that advice and it was, you know, uh, it was, it was something that allowed me not to be discouraged, but instead say, okay, Iraq is, is not only is it going to get me to college, but it's going to get me exactly where I want to go as long as I can use it properly. So with Sandcastle, was that something you started writing while you were in Iraq, or did it start after you got back? It started long after I got back. I, I kept a journal um, the entire time I was there. So uh, did I. I. always kind of... Did you really? That's really yeah. smart. It, it, I, it, it's incredibly valuable. It turned out to be 170 pages, 170 pages of single-spaced writing. Because I That's just fantastic. I wrote in it like every day, every other day, whenever something happened yeah. that I thought was noteworthy. And it's weird. I, 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 and it's been over ten years since I wrote in that journal. I've never gone back and read it. Maybe bits and pieces, yeah, so just crazy. a couple of pages here and there. The only page I've ever shared with anybody was the last page, and that was a I have learned, I have discovered, I have found kind of, you know, encapsulation of everything that I left. That's the only thing I've ever shared with anybody. But I've I've always wanted to go back and read it and wonder what I was thinking back then. So I wonder, yeah. you know, when you went back to your journal, like, did you did the ideas just start spinning in your head and going, saying, hey, you know, I need to do this? Yeah, you know, I much like yourself, I, I kept the journal the entire time I was in Iraq, and I didn't touch it um, for, you know, seven, eight years after I got back. And then what had happened was I uh, I knew I wanted to write a screenplay. I knew I wanted to, to write about the Iraq war, and I sort of had this, you know, theory, and I, and I know it to be true because I understand uh, I'm, I'm kind of a, a glutton for Hollywood history. I kind of understand that there are like every war gets either its film or a couple films. And as far as I know, I haven't ran into anybody else who went to war for the sole purpose of going to film school. So I kind of felt this responsibility to kind of take a crack at it, not knowing what it would become, but I wanted to take a crack at it. So um, when I was 27, uh, I cracked open the journal and started reading through it. And there was all of these great um, bits and, and pieces of memories that I'd long forgotten. And a lot of it made it into the film, but, what was more important that I realized is that um, there's so many things in this journal that I would have forgotten. And there's so many moments in this journal that I bet the guys, the men and women I served with, I bet they've long forgotten. So my goal was, let me write a film and I don't expect it, expect it to get made, but if it does get made, even if it's garbage, it will serve as like a cultural artifact that, that I will connect to that the, the men and women I served with will, will connect to. And I bet you, There'll be scenes and there'll be moments that um, will be committed to film that we all would have forgotten collectively if it didn't kind of exist in this medium. Um, and once I felt that was a worthy endeavor, then I started writing it. Um, but not until not until I discovered why it is I wanted to write it because I don't think it's I don't think it behooves anybody to write a film arbitrarily, but certainly not about true events or about a war. Like you really have to know why you want to do it uh because it'll be i mean to be honest it's, it's a painful thing to like crack open a journal seven years later and then relive it in screenplay form and then you have to take six years of your life to try to get the thing made so you really have to hang on to this you know if you felt like you compartmentalized the war and you put it away you have to dig it back up and then spend the next seven years of your life kind of holding on to it so um if you're going to go down that path, you better know why you're doing it. 
So in writing it, I mean, when you were sitting down writing it, were you, did you have a plan of how you were going to get this thing pitched to any studio that would make it? No, not at all. I mean, my only my only goal initially was uh, catharsis. Honestly, I, I you know i I wrote it. I wrote the first draft in three weeks, and I wrote it over Christmas break uh, in grad school because I didn't have like the money to go back home and visit my family for Christmas. So I just stayed in my apartment uh, for three weeks during Christmas break, and I pumped out a draft. Um, what year is this, was, by the way, Chris? This is. Uh, 20, 2011, okay. I wrote the first draft, and none of that first draft survived, um, but I just had to get it out. And then I finished, and then all of 2012, um, I spent writing the screenplay, and I'd finished it, <clears throat> I'd finished it like uh, like October of 2012, and then, you know, we're kind of getting some Hollywood stuff now, but I finished it around uh, October of 2012, and I gave it to a couple of my friends uh, who work in the film industry on like a Friday afternoon. And then that Sunday night, just over the course of that weekend, uh, my life changed entirely. And I, I'm not, not being hyperbolic. It really, it was this tectonic shift in my life um, because over the course of that weekend, the script passed around all around town. I started getting phone calls from uh, from agents and managers uh, that Sunday night. Um, but the most important, the most important person to call me Sunday night was uh, Mark Gordon, who's the film producer. He produced Saving Private Ryan and Speed and just a ton of other things uh and he'd read the screenplay um and he called me and he said i i want to do this this is a real this is a real thing it's not finished uh, i have some notes but if you want to uh work with me on it i will give you my time free and, and i will let you do uh um uh, i'll let you make the whatever changes you feel are appropriate but like i want to be a part of it and I, I said to mark that's that's amazing that's fantastic um, and then off we went uh, because we had a big 800-pound gorilla of a producer in Mark, uh, and we had a screenplay that was that was pretty strong that would get stronger uh, over the next couple months. Um, and I kind of felt like I was on cloud nine. And a mere five years after that point, the movie gets released, um, which to give people context, like that is lightning quick in Hollywood. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> to get. Um, which is uh, unfortunate, but that's that's just the way that it is. But, but, you know, like I said, we finished it, and I finished it in 2012, and then 20, end of 2012, beginning of 2013, Mark comes on board, and then we release it, you know, in 2017. So um, that's it's very very swift. So I, I've been lucky uh, a million times during during the course of, of this film. And to let everybody know, it, it's available on Netflix. Is where they can get it. That's right. Yeah, Netflix has it. They released it uh, April 21st um, to all 90 million subscribers, which is amazing. Um, you know, uh, Netflix came in after we'd already made the film, so we didn't really know um, if this film was going to have a home, if it was going to get seen, if it was going to get a theatrical release, or if it was just going to get dumped. Um, but Netflix, to their credit, God bless them. Uh, they bought the film in Cannes for, I want to say, $13 million dollars. And uh, they have such a huge subscriber base that, you know, I wake up Saturday morning after the film's released and tens of millions of people have seen it. It's a pretty, a pretty amazing thing. Uh, and I'm super blessed that uh, they took a liking to the film. That's, that's unreal. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I get excited. Really, really I get excited when we get 100 downloads on the podcast. <laughs> I, I mean, it's I just... <laughs> So, I, I have, I think I, I've got like 500 Facebook friends. So like, that's like as famous as I've ever been. Right. <laughs> so, you know, this film blasts out there. It's, it's, it's really something. Uh, 
Let you me know. ask you, because I, when I watch military films, I am hypercritical because I know yeah. that. And for those who have, you know, maybe joined the podcast late, like the impetus for this podcast was American Sniper and Lone Survivor. We know those stories because they were books that were made in major motion pictures. We hope to tell right. a lot of the stories that didn't have that benefit here on the podcast. But I know right. that when they make those movies, Hollywood tends to bastardize a lot. How much of Absolutely. how much of what you were putting into the film were you like dead set on has to be accurate and has to be as real as possible? This this is a great question. I'm, I'm and I'm glad that you brought it up because this is the only only interview I've had the benefit of doing that one is after the film came out, but then also two is in a you know military centric setting. So here's here's the thing is that. Um, there were parts of this story that were absolutely immovable. Um, and they were as follows. Um, one, we have to cast um, actors who either are young men or look like they are young men. Um, I'm not interested in, um, and, and no offense to, to American Sniper or Bradley Cooper or whatever, but like I didn't write that movie. Like I did not write a movie about, you know, a 45-year-old guy deadlifting in the desert. You know, like, that's not what this movie is. Um, and, and that's okay. Like, they're different films. But it's important for me to have actors who look as young as the men and women I served with. Uh, and that's something I took from Oliver Stone's Platoon. He was dead set on the exact same thing when he made Platoon, which is why all of those actors are young. Um, so that was number one. And number two, I said it is incredibly important um, that we see American soldiers and Iraqi people working together, not because I have some kind of political agenda, not because I'm trying to push some kind of message, but that is because it is true to my experience. And I said to everybody in the very beginning that I don't know what this movie will become, and none of us do, because making a film is very hard and there's millions of variables. But if we stay true to those two things, I won't go ballistic on anybody. Um, because those are the, that's the core of what this movie is. And I believe that if we didn't make a movie that adhered to those two tenets, uh, then a film would never be made that way. Um, no one would ever make a film that showed Iraqi people helping us and dying and American soldiers being sad about that, or American soldiers wanting to help and dying and Iraqi people being sad about that. That is true to my experience. And I think it's really, really important. And you know, I, I, and I said that back in 2012, um, and, you know, it seems as if now the movie's coming out now, it seems as if there is some kind of like, you know, given the current political climate, it seems as if that there was some agenda behind that. But I just want to be very clear with people, like, that is an agenda that, like, the audience is imposing on it um, because, you know, the film came out at the time that it did. It was written you know, five, six, seven years ago. Um, well, can I add to that real quick, important. just just for some validity sure. for other people listening, that you're not just here pumping your own agenda? I can testify that's the case. One of my missions yeah. in my first appointment was foreign internal defense, and we worked hand-in-hand, hand, and I mean literally. Hand, I got yeah. up every day, and the first people I talked to weren't Americans. They were Iraqis. That's right. And, and that was my life for 15 months from 2005 to 2006. And I think back to that, and, and I can, and we spoke about our journals before. I remember writing in my journal that I will miss some of those Iraqi guys because Absolutely they right. were the people. I'm only sitting here because one of them saved my life. I'm only yeah. sitting here because I was on a mission with an Iraqi gunner who, after our vehicle was hit with an IED, took out the guys on the side of the road waiting for the vehicle to stop with RPGs. 
So I owe my life to Iraqis. And what you're talking about is a real thing. It is a very real thing for some of us. Not all of us. There's a lot of guys who put on a uniform who see Iraqis still as the enemy and they'll never change their mind and they're all the same. They're all Muslims, whatever it is. But to your point, I just wanted to add some validity to it from personal experience. That is 100% yeah, I, correct. I appreciate that. Yeah, I appreciate that. And, and, for, and, for, and for folks who, you know, think about the war in, you know, binary cowboy and Indian terms, like that, that's their business. Everybody's, everybody's war is different. Exactly. Um, so I'm not going to try to convince you. Well, I will try to convince you otherwise. But if I can't, that's fine. Again, that's your business. Um, but I do think that it is, it is human nature um, to try to simplify and collapse things in a digestible manner. And I think that war is very complicated and war is inherently complicated. At least mine was. Um, so I felt it was very important to make a film that honored how complex it, how complex that experience is. And to get back to your question about navigating it through Hollywood, um, it is very hard to do to uh, convince people to spend nine and a half, ten million dollars on a film that plays in the gray area that is, that that tries to be as complex as possible. Um, it is very hard to do because just the nature of the film medium, given that you only have two hours, uh, the the impulse is to simplify, simplify, clarify, keep things as as tight and as neat and as clean as possible. And I also said at the beginning, if we do that, I will be very angry and I'll take my name off the movie. Um, it is too important uh, that a film exists that at least attempts within the confines of, of two hours to be as complex and nuanced as possible um, to, again, show American soldiers dying and seeing Iraqi people be sad about that. You also need to, like, see them work together and have successes and then have that success taken away. Um, that's true to my experience. And if that wasn't a part of the film, um, then I wouldn't have my name on it. Like, there's a lot of other things that are movable, um, but there is a core of this film that is non-negotiable, and that, that's it. And I tried to be as upfront about that as possible uh, from the start. Well, I, I certainly respect your creative, you know, what's the word I'm looking for here? Um, you know, your, your desire for authenticity, uh, but at the same time holding to your morals and what you wanted. Because I, I would imagine, I, don't, I haven't spent much time in Hollywood. I mean, I drove through there once. But I would tell you that I would tend to think people in that line of work don't have a lot of room for first-time screenwriters, first-time producers to dictate what they want out of a film. So, no, yeah, I, no not, not at all. I think, you know, um, since we're on the subject of, of, of Hollywood, you know, and I've been here for, for a while now, and, um, you know, uh, I've made this film and, uh, you know, I've got some other things that I'm, that I'm really passionate about that look like they may materialize. But in any event, the, my general kind of feeling about Hollywood is that much like any other large business, like politics or finance or tech, um, it can be a bit of a swamp. You know, there's a lot of like politics involved. Um, but at the same time, I've met some of the most amazing and talented and passionate people here. Um, and I try to collect them as much as possible. Um, but it is just natural given that there's, you know, the allure of Hollywood, the, the, the money, the, 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 the social connections that brings a lot of people here, like a bug zapper, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so you, you run into a lot of people whose prior priorities aren't the same as yours. And you kind of do your best to to navigate uh, those people, um, but it's just the case that 
uh, in Hollywood and any other business, the second the second you give a shit about something, that's the very same second you become vulnerable and you can you know be manipulated because people know that you care so much. So my experience of making this film, on the whole, um, you know, positive. You know, and, and and I feel that way because now that the film has been released. And there's a lot of veterans who've reached out to me, uh, surprisingly, a lot of Vietnam veterans who've reached out to me um, with these lovely, lovely letters. Um, and a lot of Gold Star families who've reached out to me with these lovely letters about, you know, how they feel like even though they didn't, even though their son didn't survive the war, their daughter didn't survive the war, this film has given them some understanding of what their life was like before it ended. Um, and that, to me, is is the only thing that I ever really cared about. So the, 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 the bumps along the way over these past six or seven years, the people that I've encountered um, who are just totally irredeemable human beings, um, I'm kind of okay with that as long as the end result means something to people. Um, and it's been the case these past two weeks since the film's been out that there have been lots of people who responded to it positively and lots of people who connected to it emotionally. <clears throat> and if that's the case, then, then it's kind of all worth it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, at least that's what I, that's what I tell myself. <laughs> uh, a question away from the movie. You were the 2010 Pat Tillman scholar. How did that come about? Um, so that is, uh, getting that scholarship has been the, the greatest joy of my life. Uh, I could go on and on about uh, and I probably will. I'll probably bore all your listeners with how much I love the Pat Tillman Foundation. Um, but I had applied for it uh, in 2010, like you said, and it's incredibly competitive. Um, and there's, you know, interviews and applications and all these all these sorts of things. And uh, I was lucky enough to make it through the very arduous um, application process. Uh, and I know exactly how arduous it is because yeah, I serve on a selection committee. Uh, I served on the selection committee a couple of times now, so I know the caliber of people that apply. Um, but it was just the case that, for whatever reason, I will probably never know. <laughs> they they accepted me uh, and they helped me pay for grad school. But more more importantly, um, I got to be a member of this community of uh, of, of men and women who are uh, ex soldiers or you know spouses of of, uh, of soldiers who just pump me up, man. Just, I feel like the, the, the best that this world has to offer. And I am, you know, humbled in their presence. Uh, and for anybody who's listening, uh, I imagine that you have some connection to the, to the military community. If, if this is a podcast that you listen to, they highly recommend either applying for the scholarship or making a small donation to the, the Pat Tillman Foundation, because it is a wonderful, wonderful group of people. I run in his run every year. They have a satellite run here in Atlanta uh, where I'm living right now, and and I've run in the run the last couple of years, and I've become very close with a lot of people who are tied into the foundation, and I've read Pat's books, um, you know, books about him, and I've been very fortunate to to run into a lot of people in the circles that that knew Pat, and, uh, you know, you being a Pat Tillman scholar obviously speaks to the level and the quality of the individual you are, so uh, I, I sincerely thank you, and Congratulations on that. As you said, it's an incredible honor. There's not many of them out there, so I certainly uh, applaud you for that. Well, thank you, sir. I, I appreciate that. I'm, you know, as I said, uh, uh, 2010 when I got the scholarship, and I still still think for the past seven years I've been um, trying to, to do whatever I can on a regular basis to, to live up to whatever whatever crack I slipped through to get the to get the uh, scholarship. 
Well, look, uh, I wish you nothing but the best. The name of the film is Sandcastle. Again, you can get it on Netflix. And I didn't want to dive too much into the plot because I want people to go see the movie. I, I, I really, you yeah. know, I, I don't want you to waste all your goodies here on this podcast. Uh, <laughs> so we encourage you to go out and see it. And, you know, the authenticity, I think, is something that you'll realize and you'll see on the screen. And, and that, to me, was important uh, because... Sometimes it just having a military background and, and knowing what real is when they make it fake, it kind of just takes away from it. And, and I think you've done a fantastic job with with giving everybody a, a real taste of what it was like there. And, and that connection was so important. But congratulations on all the success. We certainly appreciate you joining us on the podcast. Sandcastle, again, the name of the movie on Netflix. He is Chris Rossner. Chris, thank you so much for everything. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you, sir. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.